0: Uh, This evening, we're going to be reading through the gospel of Mark's 14th chapter, starting in verse 1 and hearing some reflections uh, from various members of the church. Uh, So beginning in verse 1, um, this is the word of the Lord. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor, you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And so Jesus here now is talking about being prepared for his burial. He knows that his ministry on earth is coming to a close, that this is a good thing, that he is going to suffer, be betrayed, die be buried, but then rise again, and in all of that, become the sacrifice for all of our sin so that we could be forgiven. That's the good news. The gospel that Jesus told us would be preached around the world, and we should take note. Here we are now, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world from Bethany, talking about him. So Jesus was right, but he also told us to remember this woman and that what she did was beautiful, and not to remember him, her, for his sake, but for her to stop and look at this beautiful act that was done shortly before he died. So just a few things to note about what she did. It was sacrificial. This was expensive perfume. Everyone noticed it. Mark, who never wastes a word, takes the time to tell us how expensive it was. The people who were offended by what she was doing noticed how expensive it was. Why she had this, we don't know. Whatever purpose she would have originally used this perfume for never happened. Maybe it was for her family's burial, or for her, or for a celebratory event. Didn't matter at that point. She had the opportunity to honor Jesus, and that's what she used it for. And she used it all, broke the jar, and poured it out. And Jesus called it beautiful. Second thing to notice is that her act was ceremonial. Right? There's no practical application to pouring oil on someone. And I can think, maybe you sometimes think, that what God wants us to do is show love through our actions, through our words. We should pour the love of God out onto the world through how we serve people. And Jesus does support that. Here in the passage, he says, help the poor anytime you want. But there is something distinct and beautiful to ceremony, to stopping what you're doing, as we're doing tonight, and just giving him your attention, giving him your adoration, just singing and chanting, holy, 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 to his face, for his honor, and nothing else. And Jesus called that beautiful. This woman's act was also a part of God's greater plan, which she might not have understood. Jesus knew the full story. He was about to be betrayed, suffer, trial, a false trial, you know, executed, rise again, this woman might not have realized that she was preparing him for burial. She was just earnestly loving Jesus. But when someone is earnestly loving Jesus, he might take that and do it for something spectacular. None of us will ever do what she did. That's a once in the history of mankind event. But if we are living our lives in a way that is just earnestly loving Jesus, pouring it all out. You don't know what he's going to do with it. It it, it strikes me that we hear a lot, and we're going to continue as we go in Mark 14, talk a lot of people hated Jesus, and they did what they did to him out of hate. They betrayed him, tried him, executed him. This woman who loved him prepared him for his burial, and it was necessary for the Messiah to die and be buried. So how beautiful that he was prepared for burial by someone who loved him. Um, And the last thing to note, I note about her, is that it was important that she did what she did on earth. You know, there was a moment in time where she and Jesus were in a room together, and Jesus said it was important that it happened then and there. And it strikes me that I don't know how much time I have on earth. I don't know how long any of us are going to live, you know, maybe many, many years maybe just a short time, but I know that we have tonight in this room, online, here on earth, to honor Jesus with our thoughts, with our mind, with our words, with our prayers, and I believe, in some small way, humbly, Jesus looks at that and calls it beautiful.
1: Continuing from verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And tonight I bring three reflections. And they are about, one, the preparation of my heart for God's presence. Two, doubt about my response in acting and following. And three, above all this, a glorious invitation. One, when the apostles go to find a place for Passover, they find this room. It's, uh, it's large, furnished, it's ready for Jesus. And I ask myself, is my heart ready? Is my mind ready? Is there space in my life, in my calendar, so that I also have that capacity to listen to to be filled by Jesus and discern and heed God's call on my life. I don't know. Most of the time, I admit that space is filled with noise and thoughts and hopes and dreams of life here. One way I learned to pray uh, in this church was using the acronym P-R-A-Y, praise, repent, ask, and yield. It is that last one that I have trouble with yield, and that waiting and that readiness that is uncomfortable and unwelcome to me. So I ask myself how I might create readiness in my life. My second reflection is about that doubt in, in the response, and I wonder about you know, the disciples asking, surely you don't mean us when Jesus tells them one of them will betray him. Even they didn't know if they would be in that position to betray. They questioned whether they could betray. I myself wonder in the moment of facing an opportunity to love or to forgive or to do some other really difficult thing, to listen to follow me and to do that, whether I will meet that moment. I question that readiness. And in the midst of all this doubt and questioning the uncertainty. There's this invitation, and we read, even after this statement that one of you will betray me, they're invited by Jesus to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Even then, we read, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it.
2: After they went out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus then said, You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight. Before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Two observations about Peter. He revealed quickly and earnestly that he didn't know himself and he didn't know the future. And secondly, he nonetheless emphatically asserted that he did and then was proven very wrong. Lest we single out Peter, which we typically do, Mark tells us that all the others said the same. Most of my previous thinking and reflecting about this passage has stopped at this place and It was true from my earliest upbringing reading this passage during Holy Week. Focusing on Peter, judging him, criticizing him, and then realizing, even then at a young age, that I am Peter, that you are all Peter, that we are all Peter in this way. But Peter's not the main character in the narrative. Jesus is. And what is Jesus saying? You will all fall away. You will disown me. I used to hear derision and judgment and even disappointment as I heard in my ear Jesus say these words. Shortly, Jesus will tell his disciples that he's despondent, despairing to the point of death. So sad. Crushed? Yes. But would Jesus have said these words disparagingly? Or with a mean spirit? Or like a know it all? If he did, then I imagine it was a first. Instead, these words, you will all fall away. You will disown me. While no doubt discouraging, were likely spoken as so many of the other words Jesus said in love, with compassion, knowingly, but with humility. Jesus knew the prophecy and he very well saw the future, but I believe these words he says, reveals what else he saw. He saw Peter, he saw all of the disciples and he sees you and he sees me, he sees everyone, even when we fail to see ourselves. And his words for us, even the hardest ones and the most discouraging, are spoken in love and compassion and in the context of real relationship. And if we're paying close attention and we listen attentively, we will hear the words of life and hope and expectation that are stuck right in the middle of the words of defeat. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you.
3: Continuing at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, Are you asleep couldn't you keep watch for one hour watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak once more he went away and prayed the same thing when he came back he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy they did not know what to say to him returning the third time he said to them are you still sleeping and resting enough the hour has come Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. We can learn so much from Jesus's time in the garden. When his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he goes away to be alone with the Father. What is your first response when faced with a hard situation? Do you spend time one-on-one with the Lord? Or do you allow yourself to be consumed with worry, trying to manage things all on your own? Next, Jesus falls to the ground and says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Jesus takes a humble posture, gives God his complete attention and opens his prayer with praise. There's an intimacy as well as an acknowledgement of God's authority and power. How would you describe your relationship with the Father. How do you approach him? Do you come to the Lord with reverence and awe? I'll admit sometimes my prayers are a little too casual, as if I'm forgetting that I'm approaching the King of Kings on his throne. It can be easy to skip the praise and just go straight to the thanking and asking. The son continues, take this cup from me, just as Jesus is being completely honest about what he's feeling, God wants us to speak openly with him too. Being fully human and fully divine, Jesus is anticipating the physical agony that awaits him being flogged and crucified. And he's anticipating the spiritual agony of taking on the sins of the world. Because in doing so, he knows he will be separated from God. And to be apart from God is the definition of hell. I think we often take our sin too lightly, myself included. We rationalize it or compare our wrongs to someone else's. But to our holy God, sin is sin. It all separates us from him. And that's why it's so important for us to not only celebrate the resurrection, but to reflect on the anguish that preceded it as well. The more we understand the seriousness of our sin, the more we appreciate God's amazing gift of grace. We can begin to fathom the depths of his great love for us. The ending of Jesus' prayer is just as significant. He closes with, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Knowing all that lies before him, Jesus fully submits to the Father's authority and obeys. We too are called to abide in the Father's love and live a life of obedience. So, what does that mean? In John chapter 15, Jesus says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So my prayer is that we all take the time daily to develop a deep personal relationship with a father so that he will be the one that we go to first. May we remember to humbly approach the Lord with reverence and honesty and ask him to help us love all people as he loves us.
4: Just as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judah said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. A couple of comments. The various power groups in the passage were often in conflict with each other, but united in their hatred of Jesus. The Roman soldiers would have carried the swords, whereas the temple guards would have carried the clubs. Why did Judas need to point out a well-known Jesus? Perhaps because of the darkness and the likelihood that his appearance was not that distinctive from the disciples. The Greek word describing the kiss indicates a lavish kiss. The linen wrap that the man of the man at the end probably was a signified a wealthy man. Some historical traditions indicate that this was Mark, the author, in cameo appearance. With our imagination, let us plausibly explore the minds of three people in this story we might discover something of our own motives and thoughts as we ponder theirs. Judas, Jesus, you had so much potential. You had the potential to be the Messiah that everyone was expecting and waiting for. With all of your miracle working power, it would have been quite easy to bring all of the religious and political parties together and restore the kingdom of David Besides throwing off the Roman oppressors, I would have been in line to rule one twelfth of your kingdom, not to mention the financial perks. I am so disappointed in you. Maybe in turning you into the authorities, you will wake up to the real world realities. Peter. Jesus, you know how strong and determined I am. I can't stand it when you talk about things like suffering and death, whatever that means. I'm here to protect you regardless of the consequences. I have a trusty sword and I know how to use it as long as my opponent doesn't duck. What, you're telling me to put my sword away? You're submitting to the mob? I'm out of here. Naked afraid and curious. In the dead of night, I heard a disturbance in the garden. I got up with my bed sheep as a wrap since I didn't have time to dress. As I arrived at the scene, I saw Jesus being taken away by some, a mob of people. Jesus' disciples were running for their lives. I followed to try to understand what was happening. Somebody grabbed me. I jerked away leaving the bedsheet in his hands and ran home wondering what would happen to Jesus
5: picking up with verse 53 they took jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests the elders and the teachers of the law came together peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. As I read this passage of scripture, the question that jumped out at me was, What was Jesus thinking? Why didn't he defend himself from the antagonists who swarmed around him, determined to put him to death? Based on previous interactions, we know that Jesus was superbly skilled at eluding the traps that these religious elites set. Jesus, God incarnate, was able to probe the hearts and expose the selfish motives of men with incredible one-liners. So why didn't he employ this ability now? Why did he tolerate the onslaught of false testimonies without saying a word? Why didn't he school these religious buffoons and go out with a flare? Why did he instead choose to surrender? I think there are a few reasons. First, Jesus had resolved to go through with his father's plan despite major hesitations. His prayers of desperation just hours prior in the garden revealed his gut-wrenching sorrow and fear. He poured out his heart and begged for an alternative plan, and yet he surrendered himself to his Father's will. The decision was a go. This was the plan. Second, by placing himself at the mercy of his accusers and subjecting himself to their abuse and lies, he fulfilled the prophecy from Isaiah 53:7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And third, when Jesus finally decided to respond, it was not with a defense. Rather, he spoke a pronouncement of powerful truth into the chaos of false testimonies. When the high priest asked pointedly, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. This refrain captured throughout the scriptures was the ultimate declaration of God's dominion. I am, the great I am surrendered to corrupt, filthy man. We know Jesus could have easily found a way out. He could have escaped his tormentors, but he didn't because he resolved to go through with his father's plan, and that plan required surrender. God surrendered himself to us in the person of Jesus. He surrendered to us with the hope that we would surrender to him. Mutual surrender results in mystical union. God didn't wait, and he doesn't wait for us to get things right. God loves us just as he loved Jesus' accusers. He loves us just as we are wherever we are. God made the first move towards us. In Jesus, divine love found us and surrendered to us, handing himself over to us to do as we please. So, what will you do with Jesus? Will you miss the great I am in your midst? Will you question him, humiliate him? Or will you reciprocate his great surrender? With your own will you forgo the escape routes available to you and join our father in the plan of surrender our reciprocate surrender results in reunification and reconciliation and that is God's hope and plan
6: mark 14 starting verse 66 while Peter was below in the courtyard one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out to the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately the roaster crowed for a second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me. And he broke down and wept. It was a cold night when Jesus was brought to the high priest. We had just heard about the escalation of the exchange of the high priest with Jesus. Emotions were climaxing not only with the high priest as he responded to Jesus' claim, but also the heated response towards Jesus by the guards with with their violence. To them, this was blasphemy. In this context, we find Peter in the courtyard below warming his hands with the guards keeping quietly covert presence. Peter likely understood Jesus' fate in claiming to be the Messiah for those who were already looking to kill him. The narrative of this passage, interestingly, says that one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and as Peter was warming himself, she looked at him, I don't know if it was because it was dark and she really wanted to be sure of what she was saying, or maybe because as in John's narrative, it describes this servant girl as being a relative of the one that Peter had cut the ear off in the garden. Perhaps she was just confirming this was the right guy. For Whatever the reason, the girl had the information that she needed to accuse Peter. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus. And Peter not only denies this, but he, he expands on it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. But then he moves to the entryway, perhaps under suspicion, looking for a place to get a, a fast getaway. The, gr- the servant girl seeing him move approached him in this new location, but rather than speaking directly to him, she speaks to the crowd around him. And she says, this fellow is one of them. But again, he denied it. Now, probably what Peter was worried about was not only that the servant girl was accusing him, but that the crowds as well would turn on him as they did Jesus. And sure enough, the crowd around him said, hey, you are a Galilean. You must have been with him. And of course, he throws down curses and, and, and denies everything. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man. And that's when the rooster crows twice. You see, in that moment, the rooster crowed. Peter understood what had happened, everything came into focus. The fatal seriousness of these accusations all of a sudden were eclipsed by the reality that the Christ, the Messiah, had predicted exactly this moment. Even before, when Jesus had asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah. And even as we heard tonight, Jesus, or Peter said, even if all others fall away, I will stay with you. But in the heat of the moment, in the midst of this personal risk, even death, he forgot what he knew. You know, the strategy of first, being accused directly and then getting the crowd to maybe come against someone who is not part of the crowd, and then having the crowd actually come after those person and, and shun them, is it's not a new strategy. I was talking with a friend of mine, Zach, who assured me that in middle school this still happens, and in my adult life I've seen it happen in adulthood as well, where We're afraid of being rejected, and others will do what they can to separate us from them. And this was Peter's fear. Peter realized his mistake, though. Despite his convictions, he caved, and then he wept when the rooster crowed. I think about current day missionaries, when they, they walk into situations where they don't even have those first two steps of someone accusing them directly or someone trying to get a crowd against. They walk into situations where they know people don't want to hear about Jesus because they'll have to give up control, much as the high priest perhaps did. So for me, as I think about this, where's the line? what risk is there in me sharing what i know how confident am i like peter that jesus is the christ that he has died for me so i can have that abundant life that he promises am i willing to risk those professional relationships those friendships family situations finances What's most important? In that moment, the the rooster crowed. Peter knew.